Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, speaking with Dr. Benoit Yu, who is at the Lyon Investigational Center for Treatments in Oncology and Hematology in the Service of Medical Oncology at the HCL Hospital in Lyon, France. And today we're going to be speaking about a recent publication in the Journal of Clinical Oncology titled Identification of Patients with Ovarian Cancer Experiencing the Highest Benefit from Bevacizumab in the First-Line Setting on the Basis of Their Tumor Intrinsic Chemosensitivity, or the KELIM, um, the GOG218 Validation Study. So, Benoit, thank you so much for uh, joining us, and, uh, and thank you for accepting our invitation. Pleasure. Thank you very much for your invitation. Excellent. So we, we do have a lot of questions, and obviously we want to hear from you, the author, um, regarding uh, this particular study. And, and I wanted to start by just discussing, if you can briefly outline for our listeners, uh, the results of GOG 218 and the results of ICON-7 and how this puts into context the reason for, for this study as it pertains to identifying the right patients for the use of bevacizumab. Yeah, it, so it's very interesting because both trials actually assessed the benefit from adding bevacizumab to first-line chemotherapy in patients with ovarian carcinoma uh, treated with primary uh, debulking surgery. And they both uh, showed the benefit in, in PFS, but there was a discrepancy in between the two trials uh, regarding the overall survival because the ICON-7 trial showed that the patient with high-risk disease, meaning um, suboptimal uh, surgery of stage 3 disease or stage 4 disease had a benefit in overall survival, whilst the American GOG trial showed the benefit only in patients with stage 4 disease. So there was a discrepancy which was a problem for our clinical activity for the routine because in multidisciplinary meeting, we didn't know what patients should actually be given uh, bevacizumab should be treated with stage 4 disease or stage 3 as well. So this discrepancy made uh, the life a bit complicated. And this is why we thought maybe it's something could be interesting. It's a chemosensitivity. We have developed this indicator of uh, chemosensitivity and we thought maybe we look at the predictive value of KELIM uh, in ICON-7 and see if we could select the patient who would have a benefit from bevacizumab. Can, can we go deeper in the uh, identification of the best patient? And we had very interesting results and that's why we had to validate them in the other trials, the GOG trial. Fantastic. And, um, and I was wondering if you can tell for our um, audience members who may not be familiar with a, a Kellen score, uh, which I understand it stands for Elimination Rate Constant K. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what is the Kellen score? Yeah, it's, indeed, it's it's not easy when you are not used to it. It's actually derived from kind of pharmacokinetic analysis. We do exactly the same for uh, pharmacokinetic for drug concentration. You will try to find the mathematical equation describing the decline of the concentration of the drug in the blood after uh, the treatment administration. And we thought maybe we can apply the same strategy for C125 
as if it was actually a drug. So it's it's actually a kinetic a modal kinetic marker uh, derived from the mathematical equation of C125 longitudinal decrease uh, during treatment. To simplify its kind of clearance of C125 can emission rate, the faster um, the C125 is eliminated, the higher the kelim, the more the disease is sensitive to the chemotherapy, uh, and the better the prognosis of patient. And then kelim is kind of brute value, so we standardize, standardized it by um, a, a cutoff, an optimal cutoff. So it's easy to understand that patients who have a kelim less than one have a poorly chemosensitive disease, while patients who have a kelim score of more than one have a highly chemosensitive disease. Great. And um, and you talked about the results of ICON-7. And of course, obviously, we're going to get into the results of, of the GOG uh, trial as it pertains to the Kellen score. Um, can you just give us some information as to what were the results of ICON-7 as it pertains to the Kellen score? So as we told earlier, uh, in ICON-7, it was found that patients who had high-risk disease, meaning uh, suboptimal, suboptimally operated stage three disease and stage four disease had a benefit in overall survival. And actually we found that among patients with high risk disease, only those who had poorly, uh, poorly chemosensitive disease, meaning unfavorable Kelim score, had a benefit in overall survival, it was about nine months. The patients who had high risk disease with favorable Kelim had no benefit from bevacizumab. This is what we had to validate on the GOG trial. Excellent. So let's get into the methodology of the, of the study and uh, tell us a little bit more about for this particular study, how is the Kellum score evaluated? Yeah, you, what we wanted to do is a kind of external validation study. So what we proposed to the GOG group was, look, you have exactly the same trial, very similar to ICON-7. So what we propose to you is to calculate KLIM with the exact same engine as developed for ICON-7. It's online, so anyone can calculate it. It's easily calculable. Uh, so we'll calculate Kelim for you. We send to you the Kelim value of patient, and you will do. So GOG statistic group would do the statistics, and they did the univariate, multivariate analysis with Lebron, Cox, etc. And they did uh, the, the analysis, and they found exact similar results uh, as for ICON-7, where it was published in GOG. Perfect. So then that leads us to the, the results of this study, your study. Um, can you share with us uh, what are some of the main highlights that uh, we should take away from this particular study? Yeah, I think there are three, uh, three messages. The first one is it's very reproducible. We knew it from previous study about Kelim. It was very impressive how Kelim is very reproducible. It's pragmatic, but it's very robust, very simple. Um, and Kelim is very stable uh, in, the, in its value. So we validated exactly the same value as for icon seven. The second message was exactly as in icon seven, among high-risk disease patients, 
only those who have unfavorable kelim have a benefit from bevacizumab in overall survival, uh, was about seven months in GOG, GOG trial. And the, the third message, and it's more like exploratory and hypothesis, we found that among patients with low risk disease and favorable kelim, meaning highly chemosensitive disease, uh, and really uh, no disease in place, there might be uh, deleterious effect of bevacizumab in terms of oral survival. We have to be very cautious about it because we couldn't find it in ICON-7 because the, the follow-up was too short. So it's only on this study, but it's still questions. Excellent. So, Benoit, we're going to get into some questions that were raised by some of the fellows in, in our journal. Um, and the first one is from uh, Jivansa Koshiavili uh, in Georgia. And she wanted to uh, specifically ask you if you can discuss uh, the exclusion of patients who progressed during the first 100 days on this study. Uh, why yeah. was that? This is what we call a landmark time point analysis because we didn't, we have not told it yet, but Kelim is calculated with the longitudinal C125 kinetics during the first 100 days of chemo. So let's imagine you have your cycle 1D1 of carboplatin packet Excel, then you count 100 days after and you need minimum three values of C125 during this time window to calculate killing. Can be whatever time point, can be D7, D10, D20 or whatever, but we need minimum three time points during the first 100 days. It's a bit equivalent to three to four cycles of chemo. And mm -hmm. of course, it's, it wouldn't be um, accurate statistically to predict something that has already happened. So we have to, we make a landmark time point analysis at 100 days, meaning we exclude all patients who progressed before 100 days. And we want to see if we can predict what happens after 100 days. That's why they were excluded uh, during the uh, time window uh, period of Kelim calculation. Great. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, some of these other questions are not particularly from this study, but I think, you know, certainly our fellows have an interest in, in terms of clinical practice. And this one comes from Nuria Agusti in Barcelona. Um, she asked, for high-risk patients characterized by incomplete debulking surgery, but with a favorable Kalem score um, with no benefit from bevacizumab, which maintenance treatment would you propose, particularly in the setting of patients who are BRCA negative and HRD negative? So it's, it's also another result we had with Kelim. So it was a recent publication on the Velia trial assessing Veliparib as a PARP inhibitor. Because everyone knows that there is a relationship between the platinum sensitivity and the efficacy of PARP inhibitor. And what we found in Velia trials is that we could select better the patient who had the benefit from Veliparib among those who had a favorable Kelim. So if if you are BRCA mutated or HRD disease and favorable game, you really have a high benefit from PARP inhibitor. So to answer the question, in a patient who have complete surgery and high KELIM, uh, this patient is uh, highly chemosensitive, so highly platinum sensitive. So for me, it's really a very good indication of niraparib as a maintenance treatment if uh, she's uh, not uh, BRCA mutated. Excellent. Um, this next question comes from Teresa Penn in, uh, in uh, Austria, and she asks, does it make sense to recommend bevacizumab in patients with uh, R1 resection 
when one does not have enough uh, CA125 values to assess killing? I think, yeah, it means was before the publication of Kelim, was, was there an indication? I still believe there is a strong indication for bevacizumab, especially in patients who have bulky disease, meaning like incompletely resected disease or stage four disease. And yeah, I think if you cannot calculate Kelim, it's still a patient that we can expect uh, who would have a benefit. The only deleterious effect we found was patients who had low risk disease, meaning primary debulking, completely resected disease. I'm not sure that what happens with bevacizumab, it's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, this next question is from Andrea Rosati, again, uh, particularly looking at subsets of patients with high risk ovarian cancer. And his question is, uh, do you think it is, it is the Kelim or mutational status, HRD status, that have the greatest impact in the modulation of the maintenance therapy? Uh, for example, in a high-risk patient, Kelim unfavorable, BRCA mutated, how would you direct your maintenance strategy? So I, th I think both are important. I think both are very complementary. We have found that actually uh, KLIM and HRD status are not similar. They provide different information and they are complementary. Now, if we have to compare both of them, there is much more prospective validation study about HRD status and PARP inhibitor. So I would give the priority to uh, the BRCA mutation in, in this case. Uh, rather than Kelim. Now, be careful. A patient with BRCA mutation was unfavorable Kelim uh, might not be doing well very fast. We have seen, because we do it every day, and what we have seen in our routine practice is that even patients who have BRCA mutated or HRD disease, unfavorable Kelim, they don't respond very well to platinum and to PARP inhibitor. So, of course, you give the priority to the highest level of evidence but be aware that this patient might not be doing well soon. Excellent. Um, next question comes from Ryan Khan. He's a fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he asks, for patients with Kalim unfavorable disease, what do you feel are the main molecular and biological factors specific to this cohort of patients, which places them at a higher risk? Yeah, that's true that Kalim is actually pragmatic. <laughs> indicator. So it does not give explanation about the biology of the cancer, just pragmatic, but it works. So sometimes pragmatism is good when we don't understand everything. As long as we won't have understood everything about ovarian carcinoma would be useful. The day biology explains everything, we won't need anymore. And uh, now, what do we know about the relationship between biology of cancer and Kelim? Uh, we don't know so much. What we know is that patients with BRCA mutation have higher Kelim, especially the BRCA2 mutation, which makes sense because we know these are the patients who benefit the most from PARP inhibitor. HRD is moderately related to Kelim, but poorly. Uh, TILS, TILS infiltration. So after neoadjuvant driven chemotherapy, we have found that patients who have high KELIM have much higher infiltrates in TIL uh, after the neoadjuvant chemo compared to before chemo. So it's kind of selection uh, of the uh, tumor disease with KELIM. Uh, and for the time being, we are assessing, currently assessing the relationship between other genes with multi-panel gene and we'll have answer in the future. 
Excellent. Um, now, this question comes from uh, Jennifer Davis Oliveira in the UK. And she asked, do you think that given the controversy associated with classifying ovarian cancer patients as low risk versus high risk, that there is a value in investigating bevacizumab in all ovarian cancer patients and not just those classified as high risk? In other words, do you think bevacizumab could offer a benefit in those classified as having low risk disease? Uh, so we have to be careful of something when we talk about high risk and low risk disease. This classification was done for patients treated with primary debulking surgery. This was done for patients in icon 7 gog 2 trial. We don't really know uh, how to classify patients who are treated by uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and interval debulking surgery. So, you know, I, I don't know in US, but I think it's more than 50% of patients now treated with neoadjuvant chemo and then interval debulking surgery, I, I would consider this patient as high risk. So you already have half of patients likely to benefit from bevacizumab, even if we have no evidence about it. We have no trial really assessing the benefit from bevacizumab with interval debulking surgery. So now uh, to answer the question, I think because we found that patients with low-risk disease, meaning primary debulking surgery and complete surgery, with favorable claims, there could be a deleterious effect. I would say I would discourage bevacizumab in this patient as long as we don't have more data. Yeah, and, and I think the, the next question is from Andrea Rosati. It's kind of along the same lines. Um, he, you know, he asked that the, the authors of, of your study uh, report a potential non-significant detrimental overall survival effect of bevacizumab in patients with low risk and favorable Kalem. Um, in low risk and Kalem favorable patients where the use of PARP seems to have the greatest advantage can we still consider bevacizumab as a maintenance therapy option or should we advise our patients against it? Yeah, it's exactly what we're saying. I think we have another option in this patient. We are not sure if there is a risk of deleterious effect. I wouldn't take this risk myself. So I would really encourage prescription of nirapamib, or sometimes some patient can also have no benefit from maintenance treatment. It's acceptable. Imagine a patient who have a complete primary debulking surgery, HRP disease. Um, why not? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this next question comes from Ryan Kahn, in, uh, again in, in New York. And he, uh, he asks, you, as you allude to in the discussion, there are further prospective trials to validate the Kellim, uh, and this, these are warranted. Um, he says, hopefully the Nirvana 1 uh, study could provide further insight as well. But if you had unlimited resources in an ideal world, how would you design the most effective study to assess the Kellum validation? So uh, in an ideal world where I would have enormous amount of money, what I would do. So when you want to validate a biomarker, you have to randomize your biomarker. So you would take patients with a hyperarine carcinoma, you want randomized uh, those based on the killing favorable versus unfavorable and then you want to randomize the treatment on it and then you would have your four arms trial and you could really see if it's not only prognostic but also predictive of the benefit of treatment so i would make a kind of paola one trial 
with three uh, arms I would investigate, one with PARP inhibitor alone, one with PARP uh, bevacizumab alone, and not with PARP inhibitor plus bevacizumab, randomized on KELIM, and then would have six arms and would really be able uh, to really validate uh, the predictive value of KELIM, but would a huge number of patients it would be very expensive, but in an ideal world, this is what we'd do. Yeah, that would be a, that would be a great study. But he did say with unlimited resources. So. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, Giulio Bonaldo from uh, Italy. He's asking, you know, as gynecologic oncologists, we have a need for markers of tumor uh, chemosensitivity in ovarian cancer patients that will hopefully uh, help us in the decision of adjuvant or maintenance therapy. Um, he points to the fact that the pathological uh, chemotherapy response score, or the CRS, and tumor infiltrating lymphocytes are other promising indicators of tumor chemosensitivity. Um, do you, did you study any relationship with the chemotherapy response score, TILS, and the Kelling score? Yeah, we did, and um, we should be able to publish it soon. So we looked at the data sets of a, a Shiva trial. Shiva trial is a French trial where a patient uh, all treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy interval debulking surgery. They were randomized with chemo with or without nantedanib. The trial was negative, but what was interesting is that uh, Professor Pujad-Lorraine designed the trial so we would be able to assess plenty of biomarkers. So we could calculate Kelim. We found that he was a good predictor of the feasibility of complete interval debulking surgery, and we published it. But at the same time, we also could look at um, biomarkers in the tumors. So we could look at uh, the TIL infiltrates, and we also could look at the CRS uh, response. And it's very interesting to see that uh, at baseline, before chemo, there's absolutely no relationship between KELIM and TILS infiltrate and any other biomarker. But after neoadjuvant chemo, after three cycles, uh, those patients who have a, a favorable KELIM score have much higher TILS infiltrates than those who have unfavorable KELIM. It's almost like an on-off effect. So yeah, for TILS. And now regarding CRS, yes, we found those patients who had CRS3, meaning complete pathological response has had much higher killing value than mm -hmm. those uh, who had CRS uh, 2 or 1. And this is this contributed to our to the concept that killing is actually a pragmatic indicator of the chemosensitivity. Great, great to see those uh, those results. Um, Nuria Agusti uh, goes back to asking us, do you think it would be interesting to evaluate the killing score um, in the response of other maintenance treatments in ovarian cancer? Yes, uh, because if you consider that KELIM is related to TILS, you can really consider that it could be related to the efficacy of immunotherapy. And so far, immunotherapy has not been very successful in ovarian carcinoma. So uh, this is what we are currently working on is to see if Kelim could predict the benefit from immunotherapy in patient treated in first line setting. So it's it's something we are working on. Uh, but outside bevacizumab PAP inhibitor immunotherapy, we don't really have any anything else. It's not the case for later setting, like patients with recurrent disease. Uh, we are also looking at the predictive value of Kelim for other 
targeted agents being developed. Great. So um, uh, as we come to the uh, last few questions uh, of the podcast, uh, Devansa Koshevili, um, she asked, what are, what are the future directions that you see for this line of research and, and how do you hope it will, it will impact patient care in the future? Um, so I think Kelim has a, a high advantage. It's already available. Um, it's online, so anyone can calculate. So you, it's a biomarker kinetics internet site. Uh, you select the uh, page of C125 neoadjuvant for patients treated with neoadjuvant disease or adjuvant for those who had primary debulking surgery. You enter your three C125 uh, during the first 100 days, and you have the KLIM given to you. And it's interesting to know that the internet site is now used by more than 1,500 uh, people a month uh, in the world world. So I think it's it's free, it's free, so anyone can calculate it, and it's it's becoming an additional tool uh, for the routine. Uh, what do I see for the future? I think. Um, we have been very concerned about the poor prognostic uh, of patients with poorly chemosensitive disease, meaning unfavorable KIM. Um, and uh, we really have to do something for these patients because they won't benefit from the development of PARP inhibitor. PARP inhibitor work in patients with favorable KIM, but not for those with unfavorable KIM. Bevacizumab is good, but we need more than that. So we really need to focus on this population and it really give a tool for um, raising the awareness of patients about uh, the prognosis of patients. If patient has unfavorable claim, be careful. And we are now uh, launching um, a big uh, European project. It has been accepted uh, for funding, uh, where patients who have poor prognostic because they had unfavorable KLIM, they have unfavorable KLIM, and they could not benefit from complete interval debulking surgery after three neoadjuvant chemotherapy. They will be randomized between the continuation of standard chemotherapy or the dose densification of chemo with weekly dose dense carboplatin packet Excel. And we see if at least we can improve a bit uh, their prognostic with the, the chemotherapy densification with maybe we can improve the likelihood of complete surgery. It will be called the Salvovar trial. So we are launching it. And mm. I, I hope beyond just the results, will it work or not? It's just to raise the awareness of clinicians about this population of patients. They really need innovation. They need uh, trials uh, to find a way to reverse their prognosis. Excellent. And uh, getting on to, to that point that you mentioned with regards to uh, certain populations of patients. This this question comes to us from Anissa Mburu in Kenya, and and she's uh, um, concerned about treatment interruptions. And frankly, not unique to low and middle income countries, but also to uh, high income countries with regards to toxicities, medical, financial, social that could interrupt uh, the treatment. Um, she asked, what would be the potential impact on the final assessment of the Kellim score? Um, based on, on these issues of treatment interruptions? It's difficult to answer this question because we have not really addressed that. What I can tell is the KELIM calculation does integrate the dates of the chemotherapy. 
the first three or four cycles of chemo. So normally, because it's a pharmacokinetic model, it does integrate the fact that the chemotherapy was delayed, for example, if it was delayed. So I think Kelim is something like intrinsic intrinsic feature of the of the cancer. I'm not sure that uh, I think if you already have one cycle of chemo or two cycles and you have three time points of CA125, that will already give you an information about your cancer. Won't tell you the whole prognosis because if chemotherapy is not maintained after, of course, you don't, you are not sure what happened, but at least you will have this information about your cancer. So I would say it still gives some information, but we are not sure of everything. Excellent. Um, and uh, just uh, on to the last two questions. Um, obviously, a great study. Um, but what do you see as the limitations of your study? Um, yeah, there are several limitations. Uh, the first one, they were retrospective studies. So, of course, we are limited in the possibility of drawing conclusion. The second one, they were only patients treated with primary debulking surgery. So, mm -hmm. it's not really adequate for most of patients currently treated with neoadjuvant chemo interval debulking surgery. Uh, the first uh, limitation is the fact that uh, the uh, surgery outcome was not based on the completeness of surgery, but on the optimality of surgery, meaning that we considered optimal surgery as those who had a residual lesion of less than one centimeter. Now it's not really adequate because we know that what we want of the Buckingham surgery is to be complete with no residual uh, lesion, no visible residual lesion. So we don't really have data based on ICON-7 or GOG-0218 trial. Uh, of course, this trial didn't integrate PARP inhibitors, so we don't really know how um, interacts bevacizumab and, and PARP inhibitor in this context. Um, and, and what about the deleterious effect? Um, it's, it's, it's an important outcome, but we, could, we cannot validate it on another uh, data set. So it's still hypothetical. Very well. So one last question um, for our listeners who might say, well, how do I take the results of this study into my everyday practice next week? Uh, what, would you, what would you say to them? I would say you, um, as a clinician, you can calculate uh, the root, the Kelim value, Kelim score of your patient very easily on the internet side. Even a smartphone uh, application, so it's easily uh, feasible in routine. Um, that will give you a kind of understanding of the feature of the cancer. The cancer is it highly chemosensitive or poorly chemosensitive, and we know that it's it's a determinant of the success of the first line medical and surgical treatment. We have to remember that the first line treatment is medical and surgical. Uh, it's really a, a big part of the success is related to the chemotherapy efficacy. It was important to really rehabilitate, rehabilitate uh, the chemosensitivity. It's very interesting for anticipating uh, the uh, possibility of complete surgery after neoadjuvant chemo. Surgeons are very interested in Kelim. This, they are the big fans of Kelim, uh, what I've seen, because they can anticipate if the surgery will be complicated or not. If Kelim is very high, 
they know the surgery, the interval debulking surgery will be easy. They will be, won't be very complicated to make a complete surgery. When the KM is low, they know that will take time, but it's very important to be able to make it because um, what we understand now is that debulking can be induced by two ways, either chemo or surgery. If chemo doesn't make it, surgery absolutely to make it, to uh, maintain the prognosis of patient. So it's very important to anticipate uh, what uh, surgery procedure uh, will be needed. It's also important, as we told, for guiding the maintenance treatment, especially in patients with HRP disease. Should I prescribe bevacizumab uh, if the claim is unfavorable? Or should I prescribe uh, niraparib uh, for if the claim is favorable? So it kind of helps to decide it's better than just using the, 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 the wind on your, on your finger. And the last one was what I was saying earlier, it's really awareness of clinicians about the prognos prognosis of patients with unfavorable calim, even if they are BRCA mutated or HRD disease. So be careful for this patient. Well, thank you so much for uh, your time. This has been really a, a very enjoyable uh, discussion and interaction. Always uh, obviously learn a lot. And uh, thank you once again for your uh, accepting our, our invitation. And congratulations to you and all of your co-authors on this uh, great work. Thank you. Thank you very much for your invitation. It was a pleasure. <laughs>